I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 141. Thanksgiving just ended for the Americaners. <laughs> Americans? Hmm. But I know that we're thankful for some more Patreoners. So, thank you so much, Harley C. from Illinois. Katie W. from Australia. Angie D. from Iowa. Olivia P. from Ohio. Chrissy J. from Oregon. Tara E. from Delaware. Melissa J. from Ohio. And Jennifer T. from Texas. I mean, how awesome is it, though, that we ended on the Texas, so it's got, like, pizzazz. It wasn't planned, y'all. I feel like everything you do has pizzazz. It's got something. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. We're making our way through the people who have joined, so we really appreciate it. We we hope that y'all are getting all the bonus content. And if you want all that shit, head on over to patreon.com slash the APC podcast. All right. Well, let's just jump right in because my story is a rough one. Oh, gosh. And y'all have Will G. Dell to thank for this one. Oh, hmm. And if you don't know who Will is, he is the amazing editor of our podcast that keeps us in line, takes out all of our weird clicks and, well, ums, and basically makes us palatable. So... Thank you, Will, for this recommendation. Trigger warning, this story is about children. More specifically, one child, Jeannie Wiley. Jeannie is not her real name, but when this case broke, she was given that name because she was underage. But as far as I could find, there was no other mention of her real name. So let's start with a little bit of the background of the Wiley family. Jeannie was born to Clark and Irene Wiley. Irene was pretty dependent on Clark because she had lost at least 90% of her vision due to cataracts. I'm not sure how much or if any of this is related, but I don't know. It just painted a picture. So she was a Dust Bowl refugee that had relocated to Los Angeles, and that's where she met Clark. So If you don't know what the Dust Bowl is, it played a part in the Great Depression because it was this huge drought in like Oklahoma, that area where a lot of the crops are, and literally a Dust Bowl because it was a drought and they were basically living in a Dust Bowl. And so it destroyed a lot of family farms and their livelihood and people died and livestock died and crops died. And so it was a really hard time. I know this is so stupid, and I probably shouldn't even tell y'all this, but just dust made me think of maybe that's why she had vision problems, but I don't think that's why. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Dust bowl and the, the vision loss, it was dust in her eyes. <laughs> that sounds like a me thing so much. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's probably like, oh, she didn't have money for proper eye care, you know, or I don't fucking know what it was. But in my head is because she was in a dust bowl. <laughs> Your eyes dusty. <laughs> yeah, eyes is dry. <laughs> oh, my God. Could you imagine, though, like if you had dust in your eye, like, oh, God. No, that sounds terrible. But probably not the <laughs> case for Irene. <laughs> How'd you get your cataracts at dust bowl? <laughs> oh, yeah. Those are deadly. <laughs> I mean, like, literally, but I'm an idiot. (laughs) Hopefully y'all will get a kick out of it, because legit in my head, that's why she had vision problems. I mean. Plus, every, like, podcast I listen to and everything I read, 
it was just how it was presented. She was she was legally blind. She didn't have ninety percent of eyes. She was a dust bowl survivor. Yeah. So that one equals two. Well, I mean, if she didn't have proper nutrition and all of that, I mean, makes sense to me. And then dust, (laughs) (laughs) dry eyes. I mean, hello, it's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, she could have been in the commercials. (laughs) Clark had a very traumatic childhood. His mom owned brothels. And so he was in and out of brothels his whole life, but he had actually been in and out of foster care, too. So, like, his mom would get custody, then he'd go back into foster care, and it was just this back and forth, back and forth. Basically, this relationship that he had with his mom, this back and forth, created a kind of codependency that was pretty toxic for Clark. It was almost like he began to fixate on his mother, What the Norman Bates is going on here? Right. Well, here's the other thing about Clark. He really hated noise. It was very stressful for him, and it just was too much. So now I'm like, you know, the OT in me is like, man, wonder what he had some sort of like auditory processing something or some sort of, I don't know, some sort of sensory modulation disorder in regards to sounds. But it was a big deal. And I wonder if it was such a big deal because of how he was raised, like with the chaos of a what I imagine a brothel to be. Like, I wonder if that's why he had such an issue with sound. Maybe. Or if he really did just have a processing disorder that was not diagnosed. Well, y'all could be friends. Y'all could play the quiet game. <sighs> if only I had friends like that. <laughs> just kidding. He's a piece of shit. Foreshadowing the foreskin. Mm-hmm. Well, because of his hatred of sound, he never wanted kids. But Irene got pregnant, and when they had their first baby, he put the baby in the garage because it was a baby girl, because she wouldn't be quiet, and the baby froze to death. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Then they had a second baby who died of some sort of congenital defect. I don't really, I hate to use that word for that, but I don't, I don't know what it was other than it was a congenital thing. Then came along Jeannie and then came along her brother, John. When Jeannie was four months old, she had her regular four month old well baby checkup. She was doing pretty good. They did say she had a little bit of a hip dysplasia, but it was nothing like it was just a little abnormality of her hip like not a big deal maybe grow into it maybe have some issues down the road but not a big deal during this time Clark was still having this really kind of weird relationship with his mom but in 1958 when Jeannie was 20 months old Clark's mother was actually hit by a drunk driver and was killed after his mother was killed It was basically the end of whatever semblance of normalcy Clark had. Yes, he had this terrible, complex, codependent, bizarre relationship with his mom. But after she passed, his world went into a tailspin. So her death was like the catalyst for everything that's about to come? Yes and no. I think that he was like this before... Because, obviously, had the issue with sound, 
and leaving the child in the freezing garage, he was not a nice person. But what happened when his mom died, it was almost like he felt like his the world was crashing down around him. And his way to deal with it was to retreat in. And he became one of the worst child abusers the country has ever seen. Oh, my gosh. So we're going to jump forward. Picture it. November 4th, 1970. Los Angeles, California. Irene, who, remember, was legally blind, basically had 10% of her sight. She was attempting to go to, I think, a disability office when she accidentally stumbled into the social work office. And when she walked in, the social workers noticed that she had a little girl with her and that the little girl looked very malnourished and kind of hopped like a bunny, didn't really walk. And so they ended up calling 911, getting an ambulance there to check this little girl out because she just looked so malnourished. That was the beginning of, again, what was one of the worst cases of child abuse that had ever been seen up until this point. At this time, the jury had just sentenced Charles Manson, and the story of Jeannie Wiley beat his sentencing for the front page news in Los Angeles. Holy shit. Yeah. Damn. There's not a ton of information on what exactly happened to Jeannie. But what we do know is that Clark had just decided that Jeannie had some sort of intellectual disability and that basically she was useless, which fuck him. Even if she did have that, she wouldn't be useless. But after a big old fuck you to him, He decided to keep her locked away, away from everyone, including her own family. Oh my gosh. No one in the family was immune to Clark's abuse. Irene and Jeannie's brother, John, were both subjected to Clark's abuse. They were not allowed to talk to Jeannie. They were not allowed to do anything with Jeannie. Again, again, much less even speak to her, touch her, look at her, do anything. And if they did, they were physically abused. I feel like Irene's abuse was worse than John's. And given that she had the visual impairments, she felt as if there was no escape for her in the marriage because, again, she had this visual impairment. She didn't know what she would do without him. After Jeannie was taken to the hospital, of course, police were involved. And when they got to the house, they found this tiny room that was Jeannie's. It had one window in it, but the window was blacked out with maybe a couple of inches of natural light that was let in with like a kind of like, I guess, like a blanket that was covering it. But it was it was blacked out other than just this little slip of light. At night, Jeannie was kept in her bed in what was almost like a makeshift cage she had a pull-down gate, kind of like a, like a chicken coop would have. And so her bed was a cage. What the fuck? To go through, like, extra steps to make this. You know what I oh, Yeah, oh not God. like, okay, have free reign of your room, but you got to stay in there and you can't do anything. You know, yeah, that's he, one thing. Oh. But, like, 
No, it gets worse. Oh, my gosh. She was incontinent of bowel and bladder, and she spent the entire day strapped in sort of like a straitjacket type strapping to a toddler toilet completely naked. What? And was kept there all day because she was incontinent of bowel and bladder. So her days were spent naked, strapped onto a toddler toilet, and her nights were spent locked in a cage that was her bed. Oh, my gosh. Again, John and Irene were not allowed to talk to her. And if she made any noise, because she couldn't talk, I mean, I imagine that she heard some language in her house because obviously Clark didn't quietly beat his wife and son. I'm sure she heard words. So it wasn't like she had never heard spoken language, but she was certainly not allowed to speak and no one ever spoke to her. And how old was she at this point? At this point, they didn't know. Okay. They thought that she was about five or six. Okay. Turns out she was 13 years, nine months old. She was almost 14. And they thought she was? Five or six. Mm-hmm. That's how tiny she was. That is heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, Clark didn't even speak to Jeannie. If Jeannie was quote-unquote bad, meaning she grunted or made any sound at all, he would stand outside of her door and bark at her like a dog. Oh, my God. So she would be terrified that there was this this huge, I don't know what even the word is, deranged is what the, all the articles I saw described it as. You know, th- that's how he would bark outside of her door yeah. to keep her in line. So he wouldn't even speak to her to say, like, shut the fuck up. He would say nothing and bark at her. Like a beast. Yes, like the monster he is. One of the articles that I read said that it instilled this fear of clawed animals in her. Like she could never be around those animals because of how he would bark at her outside the door. Did you ever watch that movie, The Village? Yeah. That's what that reminds me of, of like mm-hmm. they never saw the thing that would like haunt them in the woods, mm-hmm. but they would like sacrifice to it. Just to, like, help it not kill people, you know, blah, 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 blah. But they were actually in, like, a national park. And it was, like, this one man who wanted to create a society or, you know, like, whatever. I can't remember all of it. But it was, like, they instilled that fear. And no one no one tried to go any further besides the blind girl because she couldn't see, you know, and stuff. And then that's how it all, like... Oh, wait, like she hit a wall, you mm-hmm. know, and stuff. And so it's like he instilled this fear in her that she couldn't even see what it was, but like she wasn't going to do anything to make that mad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's interesting because that's kind of the cult-like mentality. Hell, that's even every religion. Yeah. You fear what you can't see. And that fear is what, quote unquote, like keeps you in line and following a particular set of morals, depending on what your religion is. So true. Not saying religions are wrong. I'm just saying conceptually, it's similar. Also, I mean, that's the boogeyman in general, too. You know, that's why we have boogeyman, boogeyman, whatever. You know, like, hey, don't go to the creek because the whatever lives there. You know what I mean? Whatever. It's 
sad but true, but people lie to keep you safe. But he is lying and doing this to harm her. And it's, oh, God. It's like, okay, continue, continue, but don't. Right. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. oh. The other way that Clark would keep Jeannie in line, which, okay, I mean that in the dumbest sense of keeping her in line, was, of course, through abuse. Like, he abused Irene and John. And he basically had this large wooden plank. Like, not even, like, a stick. Like, a, I don't even think, like, a, a paddle. I think it was more aggressive than even a wooden paddle. Like a two-by-four kind of? That's kind of what I'm picturing. Like cut two-by-four? Yeah, but, I mean, I'm sure not that specific size. But, yeah, basically. Yeah. And that's what he would use to beat Jeannie. What the fuck? So that brings us back to Irene, who finally decided that she wanted to escape. And I don't know how she got there. I don't know, did she take a bus? Did Because she didn't. I mean, you know, she's essentially completely blind. Because of the Dust Bowl. Allegedly. <laughs> so I don't know how she got to these offices. But her goal was to go to... Again, like a disability office where she had heard they gave financial aid to people who were blind. That's where she was trying to go when she stumbled into social services. I think I said social work earlier, but you knew what I meant. Yeah. It's like everything happens for a reason. And like they stumbled into this place Mm -hmm. and their lives changed for the better, I think. Well, they, of course, immediately opened up a child abuse investigation And they didn't immediately arrest Clark because there was a debate. And for some, there still is a debate on whether or not Jeannie was actually developmentally delayed physically, cognitively, and was small for her age, didn't have the cognitive capacity to speak and all that versus was it really abuse? Now, I know. I see your face, and I saw you jump up to the mic. I know. The house, the evidence. Yeah. The, yes. But initially, they they just brought him in for questioning. Yeah. And then they have to go, like, look for the house and all that. Yeah. But for some reason, I, I just don't know the logistics. Keep in mind, it's also 1970. But Clark was able to go home. Clark ended up dying by suicide. And left a note behind that said, quote, the world will never understand. Wow. Yeah. Very Ariel Castro of him. Yes. Couldn't handle the punishment that was even a minuscule of what they put someone else through. Yeah. Couldn't handle being caged as a prisoner when that's all you did. And and both of them, in fact, for Mm -hmm. like 13 years. That is... Oh, my gosh. I do want to say that all the articles had conflicting, like some stuff says that they thought she was eight years old. Some stuff said they thought she was five. Some stuff thought she was like six or seven. But all of that doesn't matter because essentially they thought she was half of the age that she actually was. Of course, the medical professionals jumped on this case. Number one, because as a human, you want to help this poor child who was said to be so captivating and just so enthralling. 
I don't even really know the word to use, but like when she started to smile, they were like, it was this smile that just like drew you in. Like she just had this presence and this soul. So of course people wanted to help her grow and learn, but she was also the forbidden experiment. She and all of these children that are called and considered quote unquote feral children are the experiment that is forbidden. It is the best and most unfortunate way to study nature versus nurture. So there's two different ways to describe, again, feral children. So there's feral children in the way exactly that you think of it, like the cases of the kids who are neglected and are literally raised by animals. And there are so many, unfortunately. there. I mean, there's at least five that I found looking this up the very first one dates back to the 1800s like jungle book kind of shit yes yes okay probably the most well-known is and i know that i'm probably gonna butcher her name she lived in the ukraine and her name is oksana malaya and this was in basically the 80s so She was born and raised in this very, very poor town in the Ukraine that had originally been this, like, booming military town. But then when the Soviet Union ended, it basically crashed, and there were more stray dogs running around. And, you know, let's say you had, making these numbers up, but let's say you had 15 apartment complexes with 300 each. Maybe not even half of all that would be full, right? So it was just very desolate town that was going through some really hard times and Oksana's parents were both raging alcoholics who one night when she was three years old literally as there's a whole TLC show on this as I said in that episode got too drunk to care about her and when she was three years old it was freezing out and she basically climbed into what I picture like a barn with this dog And the dog is what saved her life because it kept her warm that night. We do not deserve dogs. I know. Oh, my gosh. And until she was about seven and a half, almost eight years old, she survived with these dogs. So she walked like dogs. She drank like dogs. She cleaned herself like dogs. And she's still alive. She's like 37 years old now. And she walks upright. I don't think that she can speak still. But she's living in, like, an adult care facility for people with mental disabilities, like, intellectual disabilities, and is living the best life that she can. Wow. So there's other cases. The first, like, documented case was in the 1800s in France. And they actually had pretty good luck with that case, like, the guy who kind of took it, I don't even know what you would call him, but they kind of took it over. He had a really good, for lack of a better word, documentation system of like the days and the things that they did and all of that. And he and his housekeeper took care of him and trained him to not eat like a dog. And like he was like in the, I don't even think it was a dog. I think his was actually wolves. Like he was caught in the woods while people were hunting. Wow. And, like taught him to eat with a fork and all of that. And while they never got him to be able to use language how we understand language, 
they did get him to where they, he even understood empathy. Like, wow. Yeah. He, the, the thing that was like, oh, wow. Okay. He really is getting it was that the housekeeper that was his primary caregiver, her husband had passed and it hadn't been very long. And they had gotten this boy to where he was, I mean, I really hate to use this word, but domesticated enough that he could like help set the table and that sort of thing. And he set her husband's plate and she started crying and he understood and put the setting away. Wow. And so that's when the guy in charge was kind of like, whoa, whoa, we're like actually making progress. But then when they tried to ramp up the language, he couldn't. And so that's kind of when he gave up. But that child ended up living for like 20 more years with that housekeeper that took care of him. So that's why I say that this really is as much as we hate it. It's, it is, it's the forbidden experiment. We're really able to see nature versus nurture and understand a child's brain because there's theories or hypotheses about children's development and do they have to hit milestones at certain ages? And if they don't, is that gone forever? You know, we know linguistically for kids, I think it's like before the age three, you could literally teach a kid anything, any language, and they would be able to make all of the sounds with their mouths. But as we get older, we lose the ability to make some of those sounds. So some languages that have very different sounds in English, we would have a difficult time speaking because we've lost that ability to make those sounds. At what point do you lose those and it can you get those back? So it's a way to kind of study that without having these terrible experiments in which you actually deprive people of nurture. One of the things that I watched actually, I was like, you know what, you're so right because abuse and neglect happens and as awful as it is, children die all the time from it. And when we see these kids that are feral, and I don't even think I finished that thought process of how they're divided out. Um, When we see these kids that are considered feral kids and they're finally saved, we feel so sorry for them. And it's almost like, no, these kids are so fucking strong. We don't need to pity them. We need to say, holy shit, you're amazing. Let's help you. Like, how did you survive what nobody else probably could? That's so freaking true. But kind of back to the, I know I'm jumping around. Sorry, y'all. There's so much information and so much I want to talk about with this because, I mean, there's going to be a few more things about her abuse, but now it's kind of more like the logic side of it. But there is a lot more to still cover. Her journey is not over. So when you're looking at, kind of the definition of feral children you have like i said kids who are essentially raised by animals but then you have kids like genie that is considered a feral child because of the lack of exposure to human interaction and so she's feral from a lack of accessibility type thing and never again she was strapped to a potty chair. And I'm like, so were they able to clean her? Because, you know, even the kids who, let's say really, I mean, are, are feral in the truest sense of the word with animals. I mean, they're taught from the animals of how they clean themselves. 
you know, even if it's not how we normally would with licking and all of that, they're able to be cleaned in that way. So it's like, what was she like when they, they found her? As I kind of alluded to a second ago, language is probably one of the biggest aspects that we try to understand and try to help these children with because they they can't speak for the most part. Jeannie eventually did speak some, but she never got basically the linguistics above maybe a three-year-old. When it came to the abuse, she could say, and these are quotes, father hit arm, big wood, Jeannie cry, not spit, father hit face, spit, father hit big stick, father is angry, father hit genie big stick, father take peace would hit, cry, father make me cry. Oh my gosh. My word for this whole story is just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that experts thought there may have been some sexual abuse because when around older men, she displayed some kind of sexually inappropriate behavior and inappropriate in that how we societal view it, but not inappropriate to her because it was all she knew. You know, she didn't know it wasn't okay. And so they're thinking that maybe there was some form of sexual abuse, but we don't know. Basically, there was immediately a team of psychologists and all the things, linguistic experts. I mean, you name it. And the National Institute of Mental Health created this team that they called the Genie Team. I mean, it should have been like, I dream of helping Genie, but, you know, whatever. We can't all be a paranormal chicks. True. <laughs> I feel attacked. <laughs> okay. There were a lot of people, like I said, on her team, but the two that kind of stood out, one was a graduate student. Her name was Susan Curtis, and one was a psychologist named James Kent. When she got to UCLA, for them to do all of these experiments on her, and I don't think they were all like, they weren't like terrible experiments. It was just like, almost like psychometric type things, like understanding what she's capable of and she got a lot of therapy and, you know, all of that. And so it was just kind of all in one place. When she got there, she only weighed 59 pounds. Like Marley almost weighs that. Mm-hmm. She weighed less than Bo. Like if she was nine pounds lighter, she'd weigh half of Bo. Wow. So like I said, she walked in a bunny-like type gait. She would spit. She couldn't straighten her arms and her legs. She couldn't talk. You know, sorry, I just was like, why is it a bunny hop? But it's because she was strapped to the toilet. Yeah, because she couldn't straighten her legs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like I said, she was incontinent. She could not chew. So I don't know how she got nutrients that she did get. Like, I don't know. I don't know if maybe they just gave her things to drink. But she was able to recognize her name and the word sorry. Wow, that is so fucking powerful. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. You know why? Because abusers always say, sorry. I don't know that her dad said that to her. I bet her mom did. Mm -hmm. I bet her brother did. Yeah. 
Speaking of her mom, her mom was never charged with her abuse because she was abused herself. So they never charged her. The tests that they were able to actually do, even though it was very hard to assess her abilities, she scored at a one-year-old level. Oh my gosh. But she learned quickly. I got a lot of this information from this article called The Story of Feral Child Jeannie Wiley, and it was by Kendra Cherry. And another one that was called Abandoned, Abused, Exploited, Inside the Cursed Life of the Feral Child Jeannie Wiley by Andrew Milne. There was a bunch of YouTube things that I watched and podcasts that I listened to, but these two articles were amazing. So, like I said, she developed very quickly with physical abilities, like potty training and dressing herself. So, toddler skill levels. But she's very slow when it came to language. You know, when you think of language, and look, I am no expert. I am not a speech pathologist. I am not a linguistics expert. But the little bit that I do know, there's receptive and expressive language skills. And it seemed like her receptive language skills were pretty intact. You could say things for the most part, and she could understand them. You know, not at first, but as she progressed... She could understand things more. It was almost like she could not express them verbally. And every time I was watching stuff on her and listening, and even some of these other kids that was, you know, again, language was the hardest thing. I kept thinking to myself, I wonder if they tried sign language. I mean, surely little old me ain't coming up with something groundbreaking here. And But I'm like, I just never heard, did they try it and did it not work and why? You know, I kept kept wondering like so if any of y'all who are speech language pathologists or again know way more about this shit than I do let me know what you think because again I just kept going surely they could have done some form of sign language you know I mean again even a toddler language skills they can tell you some things in sign language so I don't know I just kept kept wondering like did they try that and I'm sure they did I'm not that smart again I'm not reinventing the wheel over here, but I was curious. Basically, what linguistic experts were able to understand and prove because of Jeannie was that grammar, like stringing a sentence together, grammar, not like whether you say, I saw or seen, but sentence formation really does happen between the ages of five and 10. And once you miss that, you basically can't get that back. But communication, as far as learning to speak, is attainable and not once you've missed it, you've missed it. So Jeannie, after about a year, was able to put like three word sentences together. And in a typical developing child, right after that, they get what's called basically a language explosion. Once they can string three word sentences together, they just start making sentences and have a language again explosion exactly how it sounds but while Jeannie hit that level where the next step would be that language explosion she never had that because again she couldn't apply grammatical rules in a meaningful way of course there was some disagreements on Jeannie's care she was a ward of the state at this point her mother wasn't charged but she also didn't have custody. 
And so there was a lot of discuss back and forth on, you know, what was ethical, what wasn't as far as her treatment and studies. And, you know, she really developed a close bond with Susan Curtis, that graduate student. And there was even some discussion of whether or not Susan should be her permanent caregiver, her permanent guardian. Well, she would spend a lot of time at one of her teacher's houses. Her name was Jean Butler. And at one point, there was an outbreak of measles. And so Jeannie was quarantined to her teacher's house. That teacher kind of became super protective and restricting access from other people to Jeannie. Some stuff said that Jean Butler, her goal was to make Jeannie famous. And I'm sure to maybe based on what the discussion is to get money off of her through her fame. So she was removed from her care, went and lived with another psychologist, but that Jean Butler is who cut off access to Susan Curtis. So literally within like one day, it went from, let's say on a Tuesday, Susan was going to get custody of her to the very next day, Jean was like, nope. And Susan had has never spoken to her since. What? So because of this Jean Butler, the people who meant something to Jeannie and who had been part of her life and almost, you know, kind of her advocates and source of stability through this whole process, she had lost contact with. Hell, it's like she's being held captive again. Right. Right. Okay, so after she left, like I said, that Jean Butler lady, and then her care went over to that psychiatrist, David Riggler, he lost funding and was kind of disorganized and all the things. And so in 1975, are you ready for this? Jeannie was returned to her mother when she was 18. In the same house. What? Mm-hmm. One of the podcasts I listened to, and I think it was called That's So Fucked Up. I think. They uh, s- perfect name for this. Yeah, it was. It, they, they said this so well. Even if she had the perfect parents, putting her back in that environment is a fucking disaster. Yeah. And it's like, that's so, that's so true. Like, because it's like, you know, she didn't need to go back with her mom. You know, she didn't need to go to the house. But it's like, just to kind of reiterate the importance of the location it doesn't, I mean, even if you put her with the perfect fucking parents, even if she was in the fucking Brady Bunch. Yeah, wow. You gonna send her back to that house? Well, clearly that didn't fucking work. She was then bounced around in foster care. In some of those homes, she was abused there as well. Oh my gosh. And because of the abuse, she regressed a, a great deal. Well, yeah. And never recovered. Oh my gosh. She never had a chance. There's not much really known about her now. We do know that she's still alive. And we do know that she is living in basically an adult center for people with um, intellectual disabilities. Her mom died in 2003. Her brother died in 2011. And honestly... I saw one interview. It was very short with her brother. Like, I'm talking a couple of minutes. And he basically was like, we were raised with no morals. 
I guess he found religion later in life. But I, I don't know. There was he said nothing of substance. You know, it was like I don't know why God left me for all the. I don't. I don't there was it was just like it wasn't anything of substance as to how he was treated. Why was he spared in the way that he was spared as compared to Genie? Yes, he was abused and had a terrible life, but like he could walk and talk and you mm. know. I don't know why he was not treated in the same way, unless she really did have some sort of disability that we can't figure out because it really is the proverbial, what came first, the chicken or the egg. Yeah. We don't know. Did the neglect and the abuse cause the delay or did she have it? And that's what made her father do the things that he did to her and not John. We'll never know. Wow. And I still don't know her real name. All I know her as is Jeannie. Again, this is heartbreaking. It's that she regressed after all of that. Oh, gosh. You know what? Like, her dad was a jackass and a loser and all of that because of his abuse to her. But these people knew of her abuse, knew of her past. And abused her still. And that is a whole different level of shittiness. Yep. You know, her neighbors in Los Angeles didn't even know that they had a daughter. Wow. But I wonder, did John go to school? Like, I know it was in the 60s. I mean, I don't know. Like, what happened to this kid? I mean, I guess it's like the the doctors just assume it was a lost the follow-up kind of thing. And they must have gone to a different doctor and what have you. But then it's like... Well, why isn't she like, why was there no like almost like truancy thing? But then again, she never started school. So would they know she was truant? You know, it's like there were no fail safes in there to catch this. Hopefully there are today, but who knows? You were right. This one is a difficult one. But so interesting. This is like right up your alley with all the medical stuff and just. Nature versus nurture and all of that. And as big of a part of this story as it is, and as much as we learn from Jeannie, I don't want to lose her in this. Because the things that she has endured, the strength that she has to have survived as long as she did in those horrible conditions. You know, it's not like she was... I mean, I hate to even compare this, but it's not like it's not like she was kidnapped and had lived this life before and had that hope of getting out. This is literally all she knew and just had an innate drive, a sheer will to live from just the pure animalistic inner drive to live that helped her survive that. Wow. I don't know if she's happy. There are conflicting reports because everything's anonymous because she's in care that if someone knows that that's her, they can't say because that would be a HIPAA violation. So the reports are conflicting. Some stuff says that she's not happy and is not living a fulfilling life, but other things say that she's happy and thriving. So we're going to tell ourselves that she's happy and thriving because I don't know what I don't even want to deal with what the other option is. No, but she's strong as fuck, and so we know she's surviving. 
but that's not good enough. It's not. So I know this was a super heavy one, but in a kind of a different sense. Yeah. But thank you so much, Will, for recommending this one because this was an amazing story. Ooh, it was. I've never heard this. I'd never heard of her either. Now, some of the other kids that we talked about, I'd heard of. Never in my life have I heard of a feral child. Really? Yes. That's why I was like Jungle Book style because legit, Raised by Wolves, I thought that was a saying that people just said. Well, it is, but no, it happens. Like, yeah, I didn't know that. Had no idea. Eyes open, and I don't like it. Yeah, you want your eyes wide shut? Yeah, I would rather have lived my life not knowing that because it's so sad. But also so sweet because dogs and animals are so fucking kind. And it's like her parents were cruel. And Irene, we know that she had the Dust Bowl issue. So there's (laughs) that. But like her dad was so cruel and it's like, he's a human, and I know she wasn't raised by dogs, but, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. But, like, other people, the same thing. Alcoholics. She was reading a different person, and it was the same, an alcoholic parent. But dogs found him, and, like, I don't know. It's just, like, oh, my God. It just shows, like, animals are so special. Which is also what makes animal abuse so heartbreaking too it's like they do have the ability to empathize and to you know what i mean in those ways that we don't necessarily understand and it's like they're helpless too and it's like so animal abuse is so fucking cruel and i'm very glad that we've started to recognize that and prosecute that i mean obviously it's not a child and it should you know it's not gonna be prosecuted in the same way however it's still a helpless being, you know? Yes. Um, sorry, this is off subject, but on dogs. Imagine that. If y'all want to cry more than maybe this story made you cry, uh, listen to Chris Stapleton's new song, Maggie's Song. Nope. I believe that is. It's about his dog. Well, hopefully your story is not as heavy. Mine is a different type of heavy than your story. But it does deal with kids. Fuck. Yeah. Well, most people have heard about Indian residential schools. Oh, shit. Yeah. And I think I mentioned I had found out more about them while I was watching Anne with an E on Netflix, the second season and final season. Damn, I never watched that. It's so good, y'all. So good. But that stuck with me. Like, I had heard about them. Like, recently, and then I saw that, and, you know, like, it, I don't know, and with an E, but I felt like I did, and then, like, I don't, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, you're immersed in that, and then it's, like, close to me. I don't know. And so, oh, gosh. Well, Tawny, a Canadian creepster, had mentioned that one of the sinister sighting stories that dealt with a school that was haunted might have been a residential school. So that led me to do some research. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) And not about that particular school, but just in general. Because, yeah, all of the trauma in these schools, like, there has to be something there. Some energy, some sadness there. First, I want to go a little more into what a residential school is. Just in case people don't know, because 
because I really do not think we were taught this in school at all. I had never heard of these before, this podcast. Have you? I feel like I had, but that doesn't, I don't, like, I didn't learn it in school. Like, I I would bet money on it that I did not learn any of this in school. So, back in the late 19th and early 20th century, there was this huge movement due to the growing concern of the country's, quote-unquote, Indian problem. Gross. Yes. Insert eye roll. The top priority was to either kill, remove, or assimilate Native Americans. In 1830, the U.S. forced Native Americans to move west of the Mississippi to make room for the expansion of the United States, and that was with the Indian Removal Act, which I know we learned about that in school because of Trail of Tears. Yeah. But, like, that is it. And it was like, and then there was some Trail of Tears. Like, you know what I mean? It was like, and a blurb. Yeah. But then a few decades later, the U.S. word about space again for white people, basically. So, no, basically for white people. Yeah. So, assimilation seemed like a good option, but they would assimilate the children because, you know, they believed that the adult Native Americans were too dumb or too slow to learn their way of life. First of all, there's so many fucking things wrong with this. Yes. I mean, like, I cannot even... There's just so many fucking things wrong with this. But I feel like we covered this a little bit when we were talking about the indigenous populations in Canada. And when we talked about the Highway of Tears and just how the indigenous people of Canada were treated, I think we covered it a little bit. Mm -hmm. So basically, this is the American version of that. Yeah. And it's all fucking shit. Yeah. Because, like, just the fucking audacity to just assume that your way of life is better and the correct and that someone else needs to stop being who they are to be more like you. Mm-hmm. Like, just the fucking audacity. Uh, yes, I was going to say the audacity. So, for these schools, Native American families were ripped apart by the government and by Christians. And I add Christians because statistics show that about One-third of the 357 known Indian boarding schools were managed by various Christian denominations, and religion was heavily involved. Yeah, because everyone thinks that their religion is the right religion and that everyone else is wrong, ergo, you should convert. Yes, and to be a good citizen, you have to practice that religion. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like. So, Native American and Alaskan Native children were either voluntarily or forcibly removed from their homes, from their families, their communities, and the parents who showed resistance in sending their children to these schools were often punished. The government would withhold food rations that the families depended on. Or the fathers would be sent to prison. Or, like, law enforcement would take the children at gunpoint. Meanwhile, those families wouldn't be relying on those food rations if they hadn't been displaced from their fucking homes. Yep. So, when the Native children were removed from their families, 
And then they were forced to stay at a boarding school where they would learn, quote, the habits and arts of civilization. And the steps that the officials took to get the Native American students to, quote unquote, assimilate was terrible. They were stripped of all things that associated with Native life, their culture, their home, and even their identity. And it started with their hair, which was usually long, and it was a source of pride. Their hair was cut into bowl haircuts, which we all know those terrible haircuts. And it wasn't like there was fucking a hairstylist that took time. It was just... Even if it was a fucking hairstylist that took time, it doesn't matter. Their long hair is important to their culture and their heritage. Yes. And for you to fucking say to make them civilized, fuck you. Native Americans are fucking civilized. And just because they're not like you doesn't mean that they're fucking uncivilized. It's just Mm -hmm. different than you. Again, the fucking audacity. Just the fucking propaganda and the tone that's set, even in the verbiage. Mm -hmm. Y'all. This makes me so pissed. Well, next, their traditional clothing was taken, and they were given uniforms. The students were not able to speak in their native languages any longer. They would be punished every time, and they were stripped of their names and given Anglo-American names. Very similar to what we talked about in Canada. Mm -hmm. Of course, any and all contact with their family and their tribal members was forbidden. The students were repeatedly told that their way of life was inferior to white people's, and that's why they were in the school to learn how to be white. Food and medical attention were very scarce, and because of that, a lot of students died. And because of the no-contact rule, their parents sometimes learned of their death only after they had been buried in the school cemeteries. And a lot of them were in unmarked graves. And not to per- even remotely pretend like I know anything about each you know tribe's customs and all of that, but I'm sure that they have specific rituals and that sort of thing that they do for funerals mm-hmm. and you know that kind of thing. I mean, hell, even think if somebody was Catholic, they have the last rites and all that. You know, yeah. I mean, every culture has their own thing. Yeah, and so it's like you've not only Strip them of everything, everything, their appearance with their hair, their clothing, their language. And then you take them of their last burial rites as it relates to their culture. Fuck you. Yeah. And then can you imagine being the parent who either way, because some were like, yeah, this is great. We want our children to succeed. And we know that this is how they have to do it. You know, others, of course, were hesitant and again were forced to give up their child but like either way you believe that your child is in the best care you know and is doing great you haven't heard from them but they have to be taken care of they have to be doing all of this and then you learn that they're dead like i didn't even know they were sick that's so fucked up oh so as you can imagine The children suffered physical, sexual, cultural, and spiritual abuse, neglect, all of the terrible, no good, very bad things. Mm -hmm. 
And sure, schools would probably first verbally correct them, warn them, but more often than not, they turned to violence and abusive punishments to enforce the rules that would make the natives more domesticated and white. Such as students would get their mouths washed out with lye soap when they spoke in their native language. Another punishment would be that they would be locked up in a guardhouse with only bread and water. And again, the mistreatment went beyond physical and mental abuse because there were cases of school officials sexually abusing students. That's disgusting. One of the former students of one of the schools recounted that, quote, intimidation and fear were very much present in our daily lives. For instance, we would cower from the abusive disciplinary practices of some superiors, such as the one who yanked my cousin's ear hard enough to tear it. Oh. After a nine-year-old girl was raped in her dorm bed during the night, we girls would be so scared that we would jump into each other's bed as soon as the lights went out. The sustained terror in our hearts further tested our endurance, as it was better to suffer with the full bladder and be safe than to walk through the dark, seemingly endless hallway to the bathroom. When we were older, the girls anguished each time we entered the classroom of a certain male teacher who stalked and molested girls. Wow. And if that's not enough, in addition to coping with this severe discipline, the Native American students were victims of disease. And because of like overpopulation in the schools sometimes and everything, tuberculosis and Trachoma, I believe, it's sore eyes. Those were the greatest threats, but they took a lot of lives. But again, they didn't have a lot of care, and, oh, I don't know, it's just so heartbreaking. A man who is known for opening the first off-reservation boarding school is Colonel Richard Henry Pratt, and his motto was, Kill the Indian, Save the Man. Ew. Mm Mm-hmm. And he opened the Carlisle Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and he served as headmaster for 25 years, and he is known to be the single most impacting figure in Native American education during his time. He developed this system, like, mm, they called it a placing out system, which basically put Native American students into mainstream communities for a summer. So it was like a work-study program, but with no study. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of work. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's all it was. Yeah, and as you would imagine, schools that participated in the outing programs often exploited the Native children. At the Phoenix Indian School, girls were the major source of domestic labor for white families, Boys were placed in seasonal harvest or other jobs that were unwanted by white or immigrant laborers. Oh, and the students were unsupervised. Of course. Mm-hmm. Also, other than all the abuse, the curriculum in the Indian boarding schools were taught with a definite white bias. Take, for example, they were told Columbus Day was to be celebrated because it was beneficial for the development in their own race's fortune because only after the discovery did Indians enter the stream of history. Uh, what? 
Like, <laughs> hmm. Also, Thanksgiving was a holiday they had to celebrate because they would celebrate the quote-unquote good Indians that aided the brave Pilgrim Fathers. And New Year's was a reminder of how white people kept track of time. And on Memorial Day, some students at the off-reservation schools were made to decorate the graves of soldiers who were basically sent to kill their their fathers, their people. They had to decorate those people's graves and, well, s- and celebrate them. And like, what? Wow. And like I mentioned before, conversion to Christianity was also deemed essential to the cause. Indian boarding schools had a curriculum, you know, based in religion, and it placed the emphasis on the Ten Commandments and the ideas of sin and having a sense of guilt. However, in 1934, there was a passage of the Wheeler-Howard Indian Reorganization Act, and it established a quote-unquote, New Deal for Native Americans, and it provided tribal land ownership. It had control of uh, Native American education, and it closed a lot of the federal off-reservation boarding schools. We don't know the total of Native American children who were forced into these residential schools, but just know by 1900, there were 20,000 children in the boarding schools. By 1925, that number had tripled. Jesus, not doubled, tripled. So if you think about it, for around 100 years, the U.S. government supported these boarding schools that were responsible for more than 100,000 Native American and Alaskan Native children losing their lives. This was cultural genocide. Basically, Yeah. There was an Amnesty International investigation into the boarding schools in the 1970s and 80s. And it is, of course, what revealed the sexual abuse. And there was this one case where a teacher had raped or sexually abused as many as 142 boys before being arrested. It should have been one at the most. Fucking 142 Mm-hmm. At least. That's so fucked up. Well, here's an interesting tidbit. And it just made me like, ugh. Like, mm. I don't know what those sounds were, but that's what it made me do. Because later, during World War II, there was a group called the Navajo Code Talkers that helped the U.S. win the war. There's a whole movie about them. Lou Diamond Phillips plays in it. Love him. Anyway, But the whole thing is, is that they talked in their native language and no one knew how to translate it. So they could speak to each other and get everything across. But as adults, the code talkers, they couldn't understand how the same government that took their language away at schools gave them this role wherein they helped us win a war with their language that the government tried to eradicate. So sad. I found two schools that I want to talk about. Both are in Oklahoma, 
And the first is the Wheelock Academy. In 1832, the Wheelock Academy first opened as a church and then had an addition of a missionary school for Choctaw girls that ended up closing in 1955. The church and school were overseen by a physician and missionary, Alfred Wright, and his wife, Harriet. The Choctaw girls who attended Wheelock were between the ages of 10 and 16 years old. And of course, when it first opened, they were, again, given white names, informed that all of the instruction would be in English and they would just have to learn. And again, they couldn't speak their native language, all the things. Well, their curriculum included sewing, making clothes, and doing household chores. They also learned some business skills, reading, writing, and spelling in the English language. Each... Choctaw girl who attended the school paid for a part of their education by helping with the work of running the school, cleaning, helping to cook, chopping and gathering wood for the fireplaces and just all the tasks. And again, allegations of abuse were at Wheelock Academy. Members of the Choctaw Nation say that the children were regularly beaten And there are stories of rape and even murder of children and babies. So no wonder that this school is rumored to be haunted. There's a local legend that says hauntings at Wheelock Academy began in the 1890s when a white man broke into the girls' dorm and murdered some of them. And now people say that the walls and trees will bleed And they can see apparitions, sit on chairs, and hang from trees. The Native American Paranormal Project captured something during the course of their investigation. The team members recorded multiple instances of voices and other unidentifiable sounds. And near the end of the investigation, some of the female members heard footsteps and girls' voices, but couldn't find out where they were coming from. When being interviewed, the NAPP founder, Mark Williams, said that temperature drops happen a lot. And he said when they were at Wheelock, they were all in the attic and he remembered it getting really cold really fast. And then when he reviewed the footage, they had gotten a response. It was a whisper that asked us, are you cold? He says it was as if the spirit purposely made it cold in that room. And then he also said there was an instance where one of the team members, Albert, was pushed at Wheelock. He was in one of the punishment rooms and something pushed him. Going back to that legend about the young girls who were beaten and murdered, it says that their bodies were buried on the grounds and that's who haunts the school. And a lot of people say that they see Again, the walls bleeding, the trees bleeding. Mm. They see apparitions that seem to be hanging from the roof. They see girls who are sitting in chairs. And there's this one story about a group of teenage girls. And they thought it would be funny to steal a vase from the cemetery that's on the grounds. I don't know why, but you know, like young and dumb. I was going to say, selfish teenagers. Yeah, When the girls got into the car with the stolen vase, it wouldn't start. So, you know, they tried, they tried, they tried, 
And finally, one of them's like, maybe it's a vase. You know, like, I know we thought it was a joke, but like, maybe it's a vase. They put it back at that the spot that they got it from, got back in the car, and it started right up. And so they drove away and refused to return. Other people say that you can hear sounds of organ music coming from the old church, unexplained lights like candles, and you can see shadows of young girls. This man, Mike, said him and his wife were walking around the east end of the main building, and both of them heard a scream come out of that building, and no one else was around. This one time, there was this freaky incident in the basement of the gym where some people's cameras went haywire and like their camera wouldn't focus and they would just get blasted with cold air. And so, of course, their body would have chills. And the person's camera kept giving them messages like, hold the camera steady. And it was like the things under extreme temperatures, all of this shit. Well, the whole time they were taking pictures and they all came out with fuzzy white images. And so they like kind of became ill, like it was just a weird feeling. And so they ran out of there. And as soon as they turned the corner, the camera was fine. And then from the website ghostofamerica.com, Shonda said that her and her friends decided that they would go to Wheelock one night and they were in high school, you know, doing what you do. And they wanted just to see if a tree would really bleed at midnight. So they went out to the cemetery and they saw this man carrying like an old timey lantern and he was walking toward him. So it kind of spooked him. And so they started running to the car. Well, her friend kept pushing the unlock button, but the doors would not unlock the first few times. And luckily they got the doors to unlock when they got to the car and they sped away. But Shonda said she looked back. And the entire cemetery was lit up like there was a huge light out there. But nothing was out there besides that old man and the lantern when they were running back. On hauntedplaces.org, this person named Angel said that they went to Wheelock several times. And every time something strange has happened. But the like one of the creepiest times was her stepsister there was like this priest headstone and it had like eyes on it, like a face. I don't know, probably like a cherub or some shit, but the eyes seemed to follow them. And then Michelle said that she lives there. But one time that she will never forget is seeing a girl on top of the mansion, looking at her, watching her. And so when she looked away and looked back, the girl was gone. Another person, Shane, he said that he would go to Wheelock all the time and he's seen lights floating around the church and he saw some young girls going up the staircase behind the academy. So he went up the stairs too, but they were gone, like vanished into thin air. Up and vanished like a fart in the wind. Mm-hmm. There was another person that said, that they went inside the school and the chalkboard erasers flew up and you can hear scraping of the chalk. And also the doors slammed behind them at various times, you know, just different shit. The second school I want to talk about is Concho Indian Boarding School. And it's, like I said, also in Oklahoma. 
It's like one mile south of Concho, Oklahoma, and four miles north of El Reno, Oklahoma. It was a boarding school for members of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. It functioned from 1909 to 1983. Again, their goal was assimilating Native American children into mainstream society. Students were awakened at 5 a.m. They had to perform military drills and formations. They had to eat breakfast and were in class by 6 each morning. They would study for half the day, and then the remainder of the day was labor. So farming was taught to the boys, and girls were taught domestic labor and nursing. Wow. Because gender roles, you know. Yes. Ugh. And again, discipline was strict. If they were caught speaking in their native language, they were punished by like having to break large rocks into much smaller rocks, sawing wood, and each infraction required punishment of one hour of labor. Rumor has it that the school burned at some point and that a number of teachers and students were killed, but I can't find any evidence of that. I couldn't find it anywhere, so I grain of salt. But at the school, EVP recording devices, they pick up sounds of disembodied voices, again, temperature drops, doors slam, and objects seemingly fly out of nowhere. This person called Karen said they attended Concho from 1980 to 1981, and they said that they saw a little grayish green thing go right through the baseboards. It had like a frog face look. They said the only ones who had seen it was from Red Lake, Minnesota. And then they also said that they did get abused at that school. And they are still dealing with the PTSD today. That's so fucking sad. I know. Well, this guy, Tony, said in the northeast wing of the boys' dorm in 1982, he stayed in the first room on the west side. His roommate and him... They were up talking like around midnight, and then they noticed a dark figure standing in the doorway. They asked what it wanted, but no answer. So they decided to see who it was and chased it, but it was gone. They don't know who it was or what it was, but nothing human could move that fast, Tony said. And just an FYI, they were the last graduating class out of Concho. Well, thank God. And then Jessica said that her and her friends went out to Concho to the dorms and they didn't think they would have an experience, but they went into the dorms and like they were creepy, but cool. But then they heard a ball bouncing up and down. So they got a little closer trying to figure out where it was coming from. And then it came flying at them. They tried to get out, but the door that they came in through was shut and it would not open. And so she was like, um... I was scared. If she was a creepster, she would have fear farted for sure. But once they were out, they all ran to the car. But Jessica said she saw a little girl in the walkway of the door and it looked like she had no eyes. But Jessica said, but I knew she could see me. And so that's it. And again, it's the history and what really happened to the people there. That's the real scary story. But like I said, any place where that much trauma and that much emotion is, like, there has to be remnants of it. 
you know, it's amazing the things that humans can do, but it's also really fucking shitty. Yep. Yep. Well, and I think with both of our stories, people who were supposed to care for the kids didn't. And not only didn't care for them, but neglected and abused them brutally. One of the hardest parts about your story is that they were, some of them were ripped from loving homes and taken to those situations where they were, like you said, abused. It's, I mean, taken from their parents is just too much. And then for Jeannie to be taken from her mom just to be put back, to be, have to be taken again. Oh. This was a very heavy episode. It was. Hopefully we're learning from the past. It's taken us far too long. And clearly from the current climate, we haven't learned our lesson. But I think we're getting there. I mean, it's shocking to me that that concho closed in the 1980s. Yeah, that's fucking disgusting. Yeah. It's like shame on you. Y'all know better. I mean, all of them did, no matter what time it was in history, but like 1980s. I mean, like Madonna was around. Just put that in perspective. Yeah. You know, I mean, that just seems like just yesterday. We were born. Yeah. Thank y'all all so much for these recommendations for the stories, Will and Tony. Y'all's recommendations help us know about stories we might never have heard of. So thank y'all so much for recommending things that are more local to you and that sort of thing. We've seen y'all's reviews. Thank y'all so freaking much for doing those. They really do help. And they freaking make our day. Like, we read everyone. Absolutely. And we love them. So if you haven't yet, please write a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.